So in light of the resurrection, the early church fathers, they coined a new phrase to describe Sundays. They called it the eighth day. Now, calling Sundays the eighth day, that wasn't so much about reordering the calendar as it was reorienting the Christian faith, including or beginning with corporate worship around the resurrection. So here's kind of the spiritual logic behind this. Creation, you know this, completed in six days. That's Sunday through Friday. Okay? God rests on the Sabbath. That's Saturday. So the seventh day completes the original first creation. This eighth day, Sunday, is about God beginning the new creation. That's the era that we're in. New creations in Christ. Behold, I'm making all things new. Beginnings in a new world. All of this, this is eighth day language. So the eighth day redefines everything. You heard me talk about that at the beginning, saying Christ is risen. It's saying what's true and what's real in an ultimate sense. And it focuses on the fulfillment of all that Jesus brought, all the new, the new life that came from resurrection. Resurrection changed everything. And it's why Christians worship on a different day than our Jewish forebears. So St. Athanasius, another church father, said, and I'm paraphrasing here, Jesus became like us so that we might become like him. Jesus comes back to life and it brings a resurrection life to us. Our lives are reoriented. We're no longer slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But it's more than that, okay? It does more than just ransom us and save us, as miraculous as that is. And it does more than just change the way that we see. When we say Christ is risen during Easter tide, it is, again, a statement of reality that something has happened in history that it couldn't be bigger than this. That's the eighth day. That's what it's all about, new life. But stories are always better than ideas, right? So how about a story? What does life on the eighth day look like? We will be in the Road to Emmaus story I just read. So I encourage you to grab your Bibles, smartphones, however you choose to engage the scriptures, Luke 24, 13 to 35. Now I'm going to say this. This is a funny story. You should get a bit of a giggle out of it. Now, I don't know if that's because of our modern minds or what, but there is comedy in this story. And it is drenched in irony beginning to end. There's levity in it, but it's not without substance. It's got some weight to it too. So there's heft in this story. There's humor in the story. And I think it equal measure. There's a great line from, uh, anybody seen Stranger Than Fiction, Will Ferrell? Don't let that put you off. Oh, I like that. I appreciate that. Woo! I heard a shout. I literally got a shout out. Um, great movie called Stranger Than Fiction. Go see it. Harold Crick, main character, is trying to figure out his life and how to understand it. There's a scene where he says, I'm just trying to figure out if my life is a tragedy or a comedy. Can't figure it out. Uh, the answer in The Road to Emmaus is it's yes to both. It's a tragic comedy. It's both. And I think that's why it's endearing. And that's why it's so beloved. So we begin. We've got these two disciples. Cleopas, we find out later, and some unnamed disciple. Some thinks it's his wife. We don't really know. But it's Cleopas and some other person. They're traveling back home. They've just been to Jerusalem for Passover. They've done their pilgrimage. <clears throat> They're returning home. Seven-mile journey, one way. So probably three-plus-hour journey. And it says they're traveling on that day. Okay, this is the day of the empty tomb. Okay, this is the morning. The women saw the empty tomb. It's the eighth day. Okay, this is literally on the eighth day. And they're talking and discussing everything happened in Jerusalem, as you can imagine. The tone of their dialogue is very intense. 
very intense. They're deliberating. They're not just casually shooting the breeze, and this is not chewing of the fat. It's very intense. It's very charged as they're mulling over and rehashing everything that happened. And last week, the fresh news of Jesus' trial and execution. So we can only imagine their incredulity. Think of it. This has been a big week. They've seen the triumphal entry, possibly. right? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Uh, they've seen uh, Good Friday. They've seen Jesus' uh, trial and execution. And now they're going back home. That is a lot to take in, all in one week. So it's very surreal. It's very surprising. It's very horrific. And it's very disorienting. I imagine they're still sort of in that state of shock. Did all that just really happen? They're talking about that as they go along. And it's intense, okay? Not casual. And they're lost in these recollections, and a stranger comes up. He draws near, okay? Literally, he catches up from behind. And to me, this is already funny. It's kind of like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> it's a little bit funny. But this stranger comes up from behind. Again, everybody's traveling home. Pilgrims, very common. Probably assume he's another pilgrim, right? Traveling to where his home is from Passover. We know this is Jesus. Okay. He's clothed with his eighth day, his resurrection body now, which must have looked somewhat different than it had before. It's the same kind of resurrection body that we'll have one day. But Cleopas and the other disciple, they don't recognize him. Okay. In fact, Luke says they were kept from recognizing him, which is actually putting it pretty mild. The word there is they were restrained. So in no certain terms, Jesus prevents them from recognizing him. It's a very forceful word, okay? It's the same one used of God restraining or holding back the four winds in Revelation. Pretty intense. So here's God hiding in plain sight. Why? <laughs> I mean, why is that? There are a lot of theories. Um, took a lot of divine fortitude to re restrain and conceal all that glory, the full glory of being a resurrected Christ, okay? Jesus didn't restrain it. Might have overwhelmed him, okay? And that is how it works in Scripture. When God, full of glory, uh, is often too much for us. Think of Moses. Show me your glory. And what does he get? He gets a view of his back as he's hidden behind a rock. Regardless, we don't know why, but Jesus is holding back the floodwaters of glory here for some reason. We don't know why yet. Okay? But why this hidden identity? We have to wait and see. So he catches up from behind. They don't recognize him. And he literally says, what are you talking about? <laughs> Again, it's so funny. What are you talking about? And, and they hear this, and they stop cold. They're walking, they're walking, they're walking. It says they stop cold. They stand still. And they're, they're caught up in their grief. They're downcast. They're gloomy. They're despondent. For obvious reasons. And they're naturally, they're really dumbfounded. Like, how could you not know what just happened? So they're, in, they're, they're in, incredulous. Thank you, that's the word. And they say, have you not heard? And essentially, says, where have you been? Where have you been? How could you not know what happened in Jerusalem? Like, you were there, right? So they're shocked at this ignorance. Be a little bit like this. Imagine being a resident of New York City, and shortly after 9-11, a few days after, you're walking in the city with a friend, and you're talking about everything that just happened, and you're going, the towers used to be right there. I cannot believe what happened. I can't believe it. And a stranger who comes up from behind and says, hey, what are you talking about? What, what things? What are you guys talking about? That's sort of the essence of what's happening here. You would just go, are you kidding me? The, the, the planes, they flew into the towers. They fell. All these people died. How, how could you not know? 
That's a bit what they're saying here. Jesus, I'm not saying Jesus because they don't know that yet. What's happened in Jerusalem? How could you not know? How could you not know about this thing? And he says, what things? And they give this uh, kind of jumbled, rambling response, summation of the events of Holy Week. And there's a lot there that goes on. And in their ramblings, they talk about the prophet Jesus. Mighty in word and deed. The prophet Jesus. Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm going, oh, gosh, here we go again. Here we go again. It's the same problem that plagued him throughout his ministry. Mistaken identity, even after the resurrection. Still, the question of his identity. Who is Jesus? According to Cleopas and traveling companion, he's a prophet. Just a prophet. Okay? Now, to their credit, they're not all wrong. Prophecy is part of Jesus' ministry. He fulfilled that divine office. He also fulfilled uh, the, the office of priest and king. But he's the Messiah, right? So Jesus, the prophet, that isn't patently false. It's just partially true, which means they've got a great deal to learn about Jesus that they don't know yet. They don't know yet. They don't understand. They don't get it. And here's the crux of their, um, where they're struggling. He says, we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. Ah. There, were, there we are. So this prophet Jesus violates their expectations. This prophet Jesus disappoints them. Okay, The prophet Jesus didn't lead the Jews into the new era of freedom like they hoped. This prophet Jesus didn't redeem Israel as they hoped. Instead, he died alongside these other messiahs. Maybe they had seen come and go. He was not the messiah king they expected. Okay, His execution is orchestrated by their own chief priests and rulers. It's carried out by the Romans. He is not who they hoped he would be. So when this prophet Jesus died, their hopes, guess what? Died alongside him. Now, I know that you've all experienced some measure of this weight and sadness. You know this. God isn't who you thought he would be, right? God has let you down in some way. God has violated your expectations. He's done that to all of us. It can feel like you're losing your faith. In moments but more often than not it's actually a threshold into new growth it's just that when our idols and human hopes get burned away it hurts and it's very disorienting and that is what they're experiencing so adding to the cognitive dissonance that's already in their souls so before they leave Jerusalem they hear these reports of an empty tomb from the women disciples like the 11 they're not convinced you read the text carefully it says they're amazed at the women it's not in a positive way um, they weren't convinced. They doubt them. They're amazed because it seems ridiculous to them. The women's testimony astonishes them. It perplexes them. It stymies them. What happened to Jesus' body? <clears throat> they don't know. All they know is there's an empty tomb and there's no Jesus. They have these signs. They have suggested evidence. And they have these breadcrumbs that lead somewhere, <clears throat> but they don't know where. Now, if you're reading this, first century... Good Luke's, uh, the good Dr. Luke's words, the irony is just like peaking at the moment. Like he's right there. He's right there. If this were a film, I have to wonder if along the walk, as they're saying this stuff, is this the point where Jesus looks at the camera and just kind of smiles and gives a wink? Like, watch this. <laughs> I don't know. This is like good sketch comedy. This is great sitcoms, sitcom moment. <clears throat> but. Cleopas and his friends, they're befuddled, and they're lost in their grief, clearly, and, and they don't know what to make of it. 
And that's the long and short of it. And they're caught up in that until this stranger interjects. How dull of heart you are. How slow of heart you are. Think this is a rebuke? Who would, who would, who would guess this is a rebuke? Be bold. Put it up. All right, half of you are right. Half of you are just like, ah, whatever. Yes, it's a rebuke. It's a rebuke. Uh, their traveling companion, he does not hold back. doesn't restrain. He lays down the heavy, and it's a very intense response. It's divine disappointment over slowness of heart. Blindness of heart. So this traveler, he throws a spiritual ice bath on him. He wakes them up. Suffering was necessary for glory to follow. Something Jesus talks about again and again and again and again after his resurrection. For whatever reason, most first century Jews did not anticipate a suffering Messiah who would redeem Israel with his blood. And yet it was prophesied. And Jesus was the only way that redemption would come. So salvation, suffering, my, and glory, praise and honor, it's all bound together. You cannot separate them. You can't have all of those without the other. The Old Testament spoke of it. Jesus confirmed it and fulfilled it. And he says, did not the Messiah or the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Okay. So he rebukes them. Folks, why so slow of heart? The road to glory goes through my cross. Now, this stranger, again, they don't know who he is, does more than correct and rebuke them, okay? He illuminates how, and here's the phrase, Moses and all the prophets spoke clearly about the Messiah. This is verse 27. Moses and all the prophets. That is short form. That's a short form traditional way of saying the whole Old Testament. When you say Moses and all the prophets, what you mean is the entire Old Testament. So he lays some serious catechesis on them. They've got seven miles to walk. They've got some time on their hands, lots of time. And I think it took that time to expound upon how the Messiah fulfilled the entire Old Testament. I don't think there's a five-minute version of that. I don't think the four spiritual laws were going to cut it. Sorry. Sometimes we need like that richness of the entire Christian story. We need it. What's going on with my mic? I don't know if I need to switch to that. We'll see. We'll go with it. I love this little word, all. All that Moses and the prophets had said. So, this stranger walks. He works through God's entire story of redemption, past to present. He starts with the Torah, okay? Goes through all of Israel's history, right? The patriarchs, the judges, all the kings. Most of them bad. Few not. Hits the wisdom literature, right? The Psalms and such. <clears throat> And he finally hits all the prophets. No doubt Isaiah, no doubt Jeremiah, probably Daniel, the son of man, showing them how every bit of it points to the Messiah, the great salvation story. Now here's what drives me batty. We have no details of that conversation. None. I mean, can you imagine? That's like the best teaching you've ever heard. That's the ultimate Old Testament survey course. Wouldn't really need to go to seminary after that one. And they're captivated by <clears throat> this stranger's wisdom and insight. So Jesus spells it out for them in long form along the journey as they walk. And they get to their destination. It's getting late. Uh, the stranger acts as if, pretends that he's going to go further. And yet, they kind of go, you know, it's getting dark. Uh, you know, they're unlit past them. They don't have lighting. 
it's tended to be dangerous. You've got bandits and thieves and traveling at nighttime, wild animals, all that stuff. So they, why don't you call it a day? Why don't you, why don't you come on in and, and we'll have dinner together here? Again, I still find this really funny. Jesus is, is, is not messing with them, but he acts as if he's going to go on. And they kind of have this back and forth like, uh, why don't you stay for dinner? Oh, no, I couldn't possibly. i got to get on the road. It's, it's late. Oh, no, well, it's light. It's getting dark. And it's dangerous. You shouldn't travel then. And, oh, well, okay, I guess I could just for a moment. I mean, it feels like an episode of Three's Company that I'd probably seen at some point. So they, shrub, they, they, they urge him to stay. So they insist, basically. Hey, we insist you stay. And he does. He does. So they go to one of their homes, probably. And he remains with them. And again, they don't know who he is. They still don't know who he is. There's no mention of even his name. Do they even know his name at this point? They just have this two, three-hour conversation. No idea. So again, imagine yourself, if you're one of Luke's original readers, at this point, you are bursting at the seams. Guys, it's, it's Jesus. Oh my gosh, it's him. Why don't you see it? So they're unnamed, wise fellow pilgrim. He enters the house. They prepare for dinner. Makes sense. Long day's journey. And the stranger begins to act as the host. Now, normally, the father does this. Or the master of the house does this. They play the host. They bless the meal. They preside over the meal. Now, maybe they're deferring to their fellow traveler because the, he's the oldest. That's total conjecture. Maybe they defer to him out of respect because, again, he has this deep knowledge of the scriptures. Don't know. But regardless, him acting as host is weird. It's odd. It's abnormal. It is a bit strange. But things go from, like, strange to uncanny. And this is where it happens. So the stranger does something that triggers their memory. <clears throat> he utters some reminiscent words and he performs some uh, familiar gestures. He takes the bread. He blesses the bread. He breaks the bread and he gives it to them. Okay, this is very intentional. And it's a liturgical pattern and language. And something in their hearts ignites in this moment. Probably what they remembered in that moment, maybe like the feeding of 5,000. Jesus enacted those exact same gestures and words with the loaves and the fish, right? He took it, blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. For us, the stronger echo is obviously Holy Communion, which we do every week. We do that same fourfold action in the Eucharist every week. The taking, the blessing, the breaking, and the giving. Now, I'm not saying Jesus like gave them communion, otherwise, like, where's the wine, right? But obviously, is this Eucharistic? <laughs> you better believe it is. Very intentional. So sacramentalists among me rejoice. And I say this because of what follows. Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread, towards the very end of the passage. Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And that's when their eyes open. And that's when they recognize him. Verse 31. Again, original audience is probably going, oh my good grief, it's about time. You guys finally got it. They finally know what they need to know. And then what? Poof. Jesus disappears. I mean, what is going on? What is going on? Here's their reaction. What a great line. We're not our hearts burning in us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us. I knew there was something about him. I knew it. Again, hindsight, 2020, very 2020 here. They've had an encounter with God and it just burned with them and enlivened them and animated them. 
I want you to notice one thing. As Jesus opened the scriptures to them, their eyes were opened also. There's a correlation there. Same word. We're meant to get that repetition for effect. So Jesus fanned the fire within their hearts. And this is the language of revelation. God revealing himself to us. Jesus revealing all of the Old Testament scripture and his role in it as the crucified, resurrected, soon to be glorified Christ. They did not figure it out on their own. That's why it's called revelation, okay? Jesus revealed it to them and the scales fell from their eyes at a certain point. Uh, I'm gonna borrow a phrase from one of our bishops. This, is a, this story is a case of God taking a very long time to do something very quickly. You experience that in your life ever? God takes a very, very long time to do something very quickly. So here's how that plays out. Jesus patiently unlocks the Old Testament scriptures for them over the course of, I don't know, two or three hours, journey with them, all that process, okay? And then he does this action of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving, and he's revealed in an instant. And then, poof, he's gone. Even though it's dinner time, again, time to retire, not safe to travel, all these things. Once Jesus reveals himself, they immediately, it says, they return to Jerusalem. They take the seven miles back and they do it post haste. I love this. And they find the disciples, it says the 11 and others, so there's a group of them gathered, and they discover that Jesus has appeared to Peter too. Peter's seen the Lord, I mean, again, how is that possible? Jesus present amongst all his disciples uh, on the eighth day simultaneously, like he couldn't really, oh really? He did. We see this in all the resurrection accounts. Jesus being in sort of, in these impossible places. Always one step ahead of us making the resurrection rounds. So they make sure to reiterate to the disciples, the 11 and the crowd gathered there, that Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Okay, they mention this again. Significant that they mention this again. But here's a twist. There's some, uh, I don't know how to put it. There's a deeper level of recognition going on here. It's not the same word as verse 31. It's a different word that indicates a deeper knowing of Jesus. What do we make of that? Like, what has changed? All I can say is that in that seven-mile journey back, something sunk in. <laughs> something sunk in. Something shifted, and there's a fuller realization of an understanding that they had of who Jesus was than they had a few hours before. Is it because they're slow in the uptake? I don't know. Is it just hey, they needed time to digest it, and who knows? But faith took root in that journey back, and they grew. They grew, so the seeds blossomed into fruit. Now, observe with me how Jesus taught them the scriptures, word of God, and then their eyes are fully unveiled and open only after he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives the bread. Folks, that's very sacramental. That's a word and sacrament thing. That's the ministry that we practice every Sunday. Word and sacrament. It's the shape of our worship. Every Sunday. It's all there. So our eighth day Sunday worship banks on the reality that God will open our eyes to the salvation story of the resurrected Jesus. Let me put it in a terse way. This is from Ephraim the Syrian. Broken bread is the key to open eyes. Broken bread. Give you some closing thoughts, and these are mainly all about revelation. Okay, to reiterate, uh, nobody reasons their way to a belief in God, 
Okay? It's not about being clever, and it's not about being smart. God has the power to reveal himself to us. And Jesus is faithful to do that very thing despite our slowness of heart or lack of belief and faith. He keeps at it, keeps pursuing us, revealing himself, sharing himself, giving himself to us despite the maddening irony and fallibility of our nature. True before his resurrection, and he's doing the same thing after his resurrection. So Augustine sees it this way. He kind of says, okay, look, the disciples, they didn't recognize Jesus because they needed more catechesis. They needed more teaching. They weren't prepared yet. They weren't ready, essentially. So Cleopas and the other disciple, they saw Jesus. They didn't recognize him. So here's God waiting to reveal himself to us once we're ready to see and to receive him. Okay? God waiting on us, instructing us, drawing us out. You notice how Jesus does this with his questions. And behind the scenes, he's busy prepping us to receive him. Okay? It's not unlike hearing his word read, preached, and prayed before we come to his table. So Jesus wants us to know more fully, wants us to know him more fully, and he will get very creative to do that. Again, that's why I think that's part of the comedy, the tragic comedy of this story. But here's two specific themes on Revelation that I want us to catch from this story. I want mean, to go from the general to the specific. Okay, think back with me on Jacob, Genesis 28. Okay, he just tricked his brother Esau, and he's fleeing for his life. And he stops in a certain place at night, and he sleeps, and he dreams of a ladder between heaven and earth. And these angels are going up and down the ladder with the ministrations of heaven. And in the dream, God reiterates his covenant with Jacob and those who are to come. And after the dream, what does Jacob say? God was in this place and I was not aware. I didn't know it. God was in this place and I didn't know it. Folks, how many times in your life have you seen God in hindsight? I should see every hand. Every hand. It's kind of like upon further reflection, I think the Lord was here and I did not see it. I have so many periods in my life where that exact thing is true. It's upon when I get some distance. I'm like, wow, the Lord was there. I didn't think he was there. And he was. In fact, he was there and very present. The point I'm making here with Jacob in Genesis 28 and this story, what do you do once you've had an encounter with the Lord? Or revelation from the Lord? What do you do with it? Let me exhort you, mark it. In these stories, there's some action that's taken. There's some action. What Jacob does, he names the place. He says it's Bethel, which means house of God. So he names it. He sets up a pillar of stones and anoints it with oil, which really is, it's worship language. It's almost like he's building an altar, an Ebenezer. God did something here. I'm going to mark this place to remember it. Cleopas and the unnamed disciple didn't realize this was Jesus, they didn't just sit on their hands. They took some action of their own. They rushed back to the Jerusalem to tell uh, the rest of the disciples, and they bore witness. So when God reveals something to us, right, when he is, meets us in a, in a profound way, when he speaks to us, are we faithful to respond? Take some action. I don't know what that action would be, but something. So that's the first thing I want to, observation I want to make about resurrection revelation, excuse me, in this passage. Second piece, I think it's fascinating how Jesus reveals himself here. And again, this is where I see the humor. Here's Jesus traveling incognito. 
Here's Jesus undercover. Here's Jesus preventing these two from recognizing him. Now is God messing with them? You think God's just messing with them? What do you think? Is it purposeful? Is he just being coy, playing hard to get? I think Jesus is being intentionally playful and for their own good, I might add. God is not above playing hide and seek with us if it will kindle and stoke our hearts into full flame. The Lord playing cat and mouse with us in order to increase our hunger for him and to call it out? Yes, yes. This is God beckoning us onward. It's the divine chase. God inviting us to pursue him. Pure brilliance, I, I love this. So God's playfulness, this game of cat and mouse, hide and seek, traveling incognito, uh, undercover Jesus, whatever you wanna call that, how does that sit with you, thinking of God in that way? It's a bit different for some of us. God is winsome, humorous, really? Playful, is that a word you associate with God? That God would use not only his heft, the heavy, bring him heavy, but humor. And why would he do that? To get your heart, that's why. I love Emily Dickinson. I try not to, well, not inflict her upon you. I bless, I try not to bless you too much with her, but she is this, she's so many good poems, but this, this particular line I love, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. One more time. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circus, circuit lies. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. This is almost a thesis statement for like, what is, why does Jesus do parables? To get to people's hearts, sometimes you have to go through the back door. You gotta tell it slant, right? Jesus does that. You gotta pace it out. Don't overwhelm them. Don't give them too much. My first real job was in a marketing company and my boss said this great phrase, don't spill all your candy in the lobby, okay? And his point was, exercise a little wisdom. Don't get so excited to come in there and ugh, vomit everything you know on someone. Exercise some wisdom, some pacing, some restraint. Drop some knowledge at the right time when someone is ready to proceed, okay? That is the powerful element of surprise. That's a well-timed word. That's the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. So Jesus is savvy and smart with these two and with us. It's playful, winsome, and substantial at the same time. So we'll close here. Uh, this revelation, Jesus meeting these two disciples, I love this. It happens in a very mundane, day-to-day, -day, ordinary event. They're walking back to their home. Nothing special about this. They've done this I don't know how many times. And in this journey that is doing life as we go about our business from point A to point B. I mean, I don't know about you, that's where God meets me all the time. But it's a good reminder. It's a good reminder. As we're journeying through life, and Luke loves to talk about this journey motif, that's where God meets us. It's the real life stuff. God's seeking us out as we're just going about our business, as we're in transit from point A to point B, between this circumstance and the next. I love the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion because it's so um, unnoteworthy. Because all he says is, all I know is I got on a train. And when I got on the train, I was not a Christian. And when I got off, I was. 
There's not this big hallelujah moment. He just got on a train and God met him and converted him and he came off a Christian. <laughs> so here's God pursuing us in the midst of just the mundane stuff of life, right? That's where he meets us. And I don't know about you, but I don't want us to miss him in that. Jesus is what happens when you're busy making other plans. I kind of co-opted that and took it from John Lennon. Jesus is what happens when you're busy making other plans. So let's not miss out on encountering God in the day to day, in the Monday through Saturday, not just in this time, but in all the other rhythms of doing 